Hello and welcome to this bonus Champions League edition of the Rabona podcast. I'm Ryan Hun. I'm sat in the studio all alone, but I'm going to be joined shortly by Michael De Silva to discuss Manchester City against Spurs. Musa and I also recorded something before he jetted off on his holidays about Ajax beating Juve, as well as Barca's victory over Manchester United. And we also get into a little bit of a wider chat about where next for Manchester United. Had a couple of questions come through about identity, so me and Musa zoom out a little bit on that. Before we start, a little reminder... If you are listening on iTunes, please give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And also, if you want to get in touch about anything on the podcast, you can email us hello at rabonamag.com or tweet us at rabonamag. Yeah, so on to today's show. Right, Michael's on the phone. Hey, Michael. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? I'm all right. How are you? It was quite a night. Quite a night. Have you slept? Um, (laughs) Well, I did think it was a dream when I woke up. Um just partly because it was just such an insane game. Like, it just went one way, then the other. Um, There were mistakes, like plenty of mistakes defensively. Um, And then VAR as well. It kind of had everything a modern classic needs. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a game like that. Yeah, it um, it it was one of a kind. And, I mean, there's different elements that make different, you know, different games great. You know, we look at Istanbul in 2005 with Liverpool and their amazing comeback. But this game was great because you just didn't know how it was going to end. The pendulum was swinging one way, then the other. Spurs, at times, looked like they were on the ropes. City did too, and then it all you know climax with that var decision which really there was just centimeters in it bizarrely even though var saved tottenham in this game i'm still very very much against it are you yeah for me var is an emotion killer you know football has always been about these great moments and sometimes the referees get them wrong and you know you're on the right side of it sometimes you're on the wrong side of it but i think football is basically taken too seriously now there's so much money in, involved and so many stakeholders that a wrong decision can be pivotal not just for the team's fortunes but for the club from top to bottom mm. and now it's like every goal comes with a caveat we can't celebrate it 100% just because of that lingering doubt that maybe it's going to be chalked off even though it's clearly a, a legitimate goal that wasn't the case with spurs city it was very close and spurs were on the good side of that in the end but for me, I just don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a, a tweet last night about it. And like, in my opinion, a huge negative of VAR is that it, I'll, I'll kind of expand on it because you only have like 200 odd characters. But yeah. as well as obviously removing doubt in certain scenarios, it's also created this gigantic grey area in terms of almost like the level of precision that it reviews each decision in, if that makes mm. sense. So, mm. for example... You know, when you stop the Aguero one on offside, and by the way, I just start this by saying the reason I said this was in no way to kind of disagree with the decisions that were made. I think they were ultimately the right ones. Mm. But from when you stop the frame in in the VAR review, Aguero is literally the width of his own foot offside. Yeah, Yeah, But he's moving back from an offside position. Yeah. And therefore, he hasn't really gained any advantage from that. You know, the offside law was put in there to stop people essentially goal hanging way back yeah and i know that that's not the rule so that's not what the decision should be based on i get that but it kind of puts into really stark focus how kind of out of touch now the rules are in certain scenarios so i think that actually var might lead to rule changes because mm. the advantage that aguero gained from being the width of his foot offside and moving back into an onside position so he came mm. back onside so he, he wasn't like he gained that extra yard towards goal you yeah know? i would I, I would totally agree with that like the he, strictly speaking, he was offside, and you know the way the game is approached these days, that is the right decision, and mm. the goal shouldn't have stood. But has he has the the you know the length of his his big toe given him the advantage he needed? <laughs> yeah, to get exactly. Ball to Sterling, and to the, and this is the thing. Like, they, I don't think he gained any more of an advantage than Loriente did with the ball striking his arm or flicking his arm. Uh, well, I think that's slightly different because I don't think it touched his arm. Well, I mean, I do because there's one angle that really clearly shows it does. And then mm. um, it was one that they didn't keep showing too often though. But oh, it does. Okay. But, but for me, it doesn't matter if it does may- or it may- doesn't. Maybe I, maybe I missed that uh, TV angle while I was jumping up and down <laughs> celebrating. But, but, but my point is that it doesn't matter whether it has or it hasn't because it's so minimal. He hasn't gained an advantage really from that's, the ball striking from his point, arm. F- from that point of view, it's 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 the same. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so this is where VAR gets a little bit tricky. 
Because, yeah. for example, if, if if Aguero hadn't touched the ball and stayed offside and mm. and basically just slowly moved forward and then came back offside for the second phase of play, for example, he wouldn't be given offside, even though actually he's kind of gained more of an advantage. You see that a lot of the time where, you know, players aren't classed as interfering with play, but they've actually got a, a yard on someone. Yeah. And yeah. then the second phase of play, from that yard that they've gained being offside in the first place when they weren't interfering, that's the mm. that's the space they've created. So it's exactly. really so- weird how the, I mean, this, like I said, I want to clarify that by the letter of the absolute law, it was completely the right decision. And I'm not debating this in any way. I'm just saying that the reason VAR was introduced was to clear up stuff like this and really help referees. But on BT Sport, after the Man City Spurs game, you had three ex-professional footballers. And I actually heard Rio Ferdinand say to Gary Lineker, no, but look, look at the movement of his skin. <laughs> on Lorientes, like yeah, handball thing, and that's the thing. It's like you've got ex pros arguing, like telling each other to look at the slow mo footage of how his skin moves, and it's like, is yeah. this what we is this what we all signed up for, kind of thing? Yeah, you know? exactly. This is what this uh, VAR has, has decreased the game to. I mean, if you look at the, the, the way technology is used in certain other sports, tennis, um, baseball, cricket, it's done in a way to clear up black and white situations, and it's done immediately or if not immediately very quickly and the experience of deciding whether or not a decision is legitimate or not is kind of worked into the experience of the of the sport so for tennis everyone kind of you know goes and gets yeah. behind, you know and then it's like yeah it's it's in or it's out and it's it's black or white with football it's not quite the same because you're talking i mean yes um, ultimately someone is offside or not. But if it's two, three millimetres or one centimetre, it's not going to um, it's not going to give the striker the advantage that he needs to do something different to uh, how it would have been. So for me, VAR needs to be looked at. If it was my decision, it would be removed altogether. Um, and also there's something to be said that VAR doesn't necessarily always get the right decision, in my yeah. opinion. Danny Rose... Handball in the first leg um, wasn't a handball. Yeah, it was harsh. So yeah, I mean, anything, yes. anything looks handball when you slow it down. Exactly, and that's how Manchester United got their penalty in the last minute against uh, against Paris Saint Germain. That oh, was mate, re- you've done it now. They're going to come for us. That was really <laughs> that, that was really hard. That was so harsh. I mean, I don't really want to defend PSG particularly, but I, I felt for them there because that was that was in no way a handball. So you can say that VAR is the problem, but you can also say that the people making the decisions behind it are also part of them. Yeah, I mean, we had a question about this. Jeff Wright at GJ Wright on Twitter said, "Wary of opening the VAR debate here, but." Is what happened at the Etihad in terms of the flow of the spectacle being affected really worth it in order to get a marginal offside call right? As- no, not asking as I- someone who's more than happy to see City go out. By the way, he said. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think we've 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 already covered that. Yeah. For me, it's it's football's secret weapon. Its secret ingredient is the emotion, the highs and lows. And sometimes you're on the right side of it. Sometimes you're on the wrong side of it. But by slowing it down, by looking at it in minute detail, and you know. Also, by the way, it's meant to take pressure, as you said a few minutes ago, it's meant to take the pressure off the referees. But in fact, I think it puts it on them because they then have to run to the side of the pitch. They have 60,000 fans screaming at them to make the right decision. And, you know, is that making their life easier? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was texting a friend after the game and I said that um, these new school Champions League teams, you know, they've got it so lucky. They're they're never going to have to experience going out by an off a wrong offside call. <laughs> I was like, can you ever really be a Champions League team if you've not been sent out by an illegitimate goal? <laughs> you don't know you're born. You don't know you're born, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should probably just shut up and No, no. I mean through. Do you know what? One of the massive negatives about BAR is that this is what we've primarily spoke about already. And I think yeah. that's obviously on us. Um mm. but I think that this is kind of what happens in a way so i'm going to switch it and i'm going to go to some positives because yeah was it first semi-final for spurs first champions league semi-final not first um, european they, cup no. the european cup they uh, 1962 was the last time i think for spurs it's a magnificent achievement especially on the budgets that they operate on i know that's mentioned quite a lot but really it's huge manchester city 
the outlay that they've had at that club over the last eight, nine years. And they still haven't reached a Champions League final. Spurs are now two games away from doing it. And they have Ajax in front of them, who I think will beat Spurs in the semi-final. But I think it's it's a close game and it could go either way. Yeah, I mean, I've got a couple of questions on Spurs. First one's from Santiago at Santiago Alvaro. And he just says, Pochettino full stop discuss he's a genius I mean what he's I don't think he got everything right against Man City he's not the perfect coach but that won't stop me from calling him a genius he's mm. he's turned Tottenham around he's he's you know this is a club that before he came in would be happy to qualify for the Champions League now they're a club who are two games away from from being in the final and somehow that feels normal it doesn't feel like we're crashing the party so yeah, I, I mean, I would say that the decision he got wrong in my eyes is when Sissoko was injured, which was a huge, huge blow. He's been Tottenham's player of the season this year. When he went off, he brought Llorente on and he moved Deli Ali into a, a, a deeper position. Ali, I think kind of, he can be good in that position, but I think against the quality of central midfielders that City have, he was kind of lost a bit. Yeah. And he wasn't that was really definitely, I think, where Spurs really looked like they weren't yeah. going to get anything out of the game. And then ironically, Lorente was the guy who got... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you can just say he was, ultimately he was right. But for long, long periods, Tottenham suffered in that game. And I felt like by keeping Son up top, that's always a, a really big threat. And even if it means putting your faith in someone like Oliver Skip in central midfield, at least he is meant to be in that position so it's a tricky it's a tricky one because if you had gone down that route then you would have had to sacrifice someone like Ali or Mora and he didn't want to do that Mm. so I can see why he did it but it did mean that Tottenham struggled for a long time when you get the Spurs job Oliver Skip's going to be captain straight away (laughs) (laughs) I do like him you do love him he's got a very bright future I thought it was really interesting how Spurs lined up actually with Mora and Son essentially as the two strikers but Mm. Son and Ali would swap on the lineup. It had Ali as playing as the left side of the that three behind, but actually it tended to be yeah. Son who kind of moved out there. Yeah, it was a smart strategy. Um, I don't know whether that was instructed on them by Pochettino or whether they just kind of decided to do it because I think if you're playing the, the lone striker role against City, it's hard, hard work. And mm-hmm. by swapping over, you're saving yourself your legs. But yeah, it works really well. And the thing about Spurs when they don't have Kane is they're not as fluid. They are a more disjointed team and they're not able to kind of reach the the high, high levels that they can with Kane in the team because he does a lot more than just score goals, Kane. He, he links the play so well. But what you do get is the best out of Son because you build the team around him because he's the he's the main goal threat. And I do think that even though Spurs are a weaker team without Kane, just having Son as that threat, he can score from anywhere. And in some ways, he's actually more deadly than Kane. Kane is deadly from inside the penalty box. But Son, I feel like anywhere within 30 yards, he can just have a go and he's, he's likely to, to score. And I think the more Spurs have to play without Kane, and they will have to play against Ajax without Kane, Kane injured and Son suspended. And I think the big thing for Spurs is that they need Sissoko. They're still a bit of time before the next game. Spurs will be doing everything they can basically to get him fit, but they really need to because Sissoko, as I said, has been Tottenham's player of the season. And I don't say that lightly because Kane has had a good season. Son has had a great season. But Sissoko just is something else. I've never seen a turnaround in a player's fortunes as dramatic as I have Sissoko's. Yeah, I mean, he's Um, he's vastly... I mean, he's. I don't think he was ever quite as bad as a lot of people gave him stick for. But I just that's true. But I, I do think the level of improvement that he's had. Yeah. And do you know what I think it is? I think it's just playing more regularly and and maybe another year of conditioning under Pochettino. I think that people underestimate the level of conditioning that goes into coaches approaches like Poch and um, and Klopp yeah. and even Pep, you know, people like yeah. that. Yeah, I think that's why we might, like Hasenhutl we talk about as well as Southampton, I think mm. it's going to take a little while before we see the best of them. But once they get fully conditioned to his methods, Southampton are also going to be a team to be reckoned with. And it's the same, yeah. Like Sissoko, I don't think he was in the shape he needed to be in to compete for a place on a regular basis at Spurs in the beginning. And then when he was in a good condition, he was being played on the right-hand side, mm. which doesn't doesn't get the best out of him. You know, he needed, I think, Moussa Dembele to leave for Sissoko to, to find his true place in the Tottenham team. But as I say, his turnaround has been remarkable. It's been all about 
him as well, him and his mentality. Obviously, Pochettino takes a lot of credit, but Sissoko has done it himself. And yeah, I, I have massive admiration for, for, for him. And now, unbelievably, I, could, I would never have imagined saying this two or three years ago, but he's the first name on the team sheet. Switch it to a City perspective. We had a question yeah. from who I'm assuming is a City fan because he's called City Willie. And it's I at, would guess so. And at MCFC underscore Will is his Twitter handle. He said, yeah. um, do you think Pep's negative approach in the away leg left him with too much work to do at home? Should Pep have been fully positive in both games? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. They just didn't really go for it in the first leg, which is just bizarre. Like, I think not playing Kevin De Bruyne in the first leg has ultimately cost them here because he picked up three assists in the second leg, yeah. um, almost just to prove how, how much they rely on him. Gundogan actually came out after that first leg and said that we didn't do enough, basically. And Guardiola contradicted him and said, no, we're still in this and it's it's f- finely balanced. And yeah, I mean, City did fight their way back, but I generally agree with the point that they could have done a lot more. You cannot concede three goals at home in a Champions League quarterfinal and expect to go through. You just can't no. do it. How much of it do you think was down to the kit clash? I noticed it immediately. I was like, oh, wow, these kits are really similar. And I was struggling for a good five, ten minutes to my eyes to adjust to it. Yeah, let's just remind everyone that Spurs have a white home kit and a navy blue, dark, dark <laughs> navy blue away kit it's that ridiculous. they could have used. So they could have played in all navy, which would have been much easier to, to pick out. Yeah, I just wonder whether we saw the fastest four and five Champions League goals in a game. And I just wonder whether that played some part, whether one of the players was struggling. Because no one uh, could see anything. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's have a couple final questions before we wrap this bit up. Yeah. From Shane Thomas at Token BG. Two questions from him. The first one, does this Champions League season prove that the competition is too inherently wild to bow to the will of money alone? PSG and City have never reached a final. Does it also show why a Euro Super League would be irredeemably dull compared to this i think the champions league has been getting quite dull in itself for the last few years and every now and again you get the odd team who who shake it up like the most recent example is is monaco they were a breath of fresh air and this season is good in that okay you've got one semi-final liverpool versus barcelona that's going to be the headline semi-final and most people will think that the winner of the whole tournament will come from that game but then you have this really great semi-final that no one would ever have imagined Mm. ajax versus tottenham I think we need more of that. I do think that the the tournament has been getting stale for a few years. A European Super League would make it 10 times duller um, and would be the the, the beginning of the end for football, if you ask me. But yeah, I think more needs to be done to level the playing field. Yeah, I mean, we've spoke about this, didn't we? We did that big episode on the European Super League back in, what was it, September, October time? Yeah. Go and dig that out if you haven't listened to it. And we said, you know, the priority should be the distribution of wealth more equally among European leagues. and. raise the level of competition throughout Europe to get more variation in the Champions League. But unfortunately, the biggest grossing in terms of revenue, six, seven, eight clubs in Europe don't want more competition in the Champions League. They want to solidify. And some of them aren't even in the Champions League. Arsenal being a prime example of a club who were involved in those talks. They're not even in the Champions League and they want to solidify themselves in a European Super League. Yeah. Yeah, and then you also have Andrea Agnelli, the Juventus president who's also trying to change the format of the Champions League to have um, four groups of eight uh, where a certain number of teams are permanently involved in the competition. Which is just, um, I just can't even understand that logic. Uh, obviously, one of them would be Juventus. That's <laughs> uh, what he's arguing. I mean, it's, yeah, for me, that's completely unacceptable and football fans need to fight it. Yeah, definitely. Right, let's wrap this bit up because me and Moose are also chatted for a hell of a long time about the rest of the games. <laughs> Congrats, man. I'm happy for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we're going to lose to YX, but we beat City and no one can ever take that away from us. <laughs> no, one, no one could ever take that away. The massive downside of all of this, though, was that I was literally uploading a Raheem Sterling Robonoselect. <laughs> and then it went to VAR review and I was just like, cancel, cancel, cancel. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that one will have to wait. But it's a good one. Right, man. Um, yep. Catch you soon. Yeah. Nice one, right. Michael. Going to take a break and then we'll come back, me and Musa.
Right, we're back from the break and me and Musa are going to talk Juventus Ajax. An amazing game from the Allianz Stadium in Turin. Ajax were on a different level, weren't they? They really were. The first 20 minutes, I think, they weren't great, actually. And there was a little bit of a worry that maybe... The occasion was a big one? Or they were maybe, I don't know, maybe aware of the stakes a little bit more. Not that the Real game was a free hit because it's the Bernabeu, but in one sense, beating Real, so emotional, so cathartic. Yeah, it's very hard to follow up with another. Right, and then when, when you beat a team like Real, the way they beat them... They put a target on their backs. And it was weird because even after the target was on their backs, there was still a kind of sense that it was an easy game. People saying, oh yeah, you know, Ajax, the best team in the draw to get. I mean, I'm I'm not being funny, but off the face of it, I'd rather have drawn United or Porto than Ajax, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Ajax is that they don't do the usual tactic that maybe a team operating on the budget that they are operating on would do against a team against teams operating on the level of Real Madrid or Juventus, which is kind of try and contain or counter-attack and stuff. They just go at them. They go at them and they play football. And the thing that was so impressive about the game in Turin was that they went a goal down and just didn't panic. Didn't panic, didn't look really that flustered. And then as the game went on, they started to just control it more and more and more. And it was them putting the squeeze on Juve when you would have really expected, considering the stakes, you know, this whole season for Juve has been about winning the Champions League. Right, it's the, the obsession. only reason they signed Ronaldo, really. It's the grand project, the Juventus project. Yeah, you know, they've been to, a, what, two or three finals in the last five years? Right. And they're out in the quarterfinal stage, despite this being their big push, which I think is a sign of just how good Ajax are. Right. And... I wrote a tweet after the Real Madrid game and I, repo- I retweeted it after this game, which was that Ajax is saving football from itself. Right. And it's a bit of a, obviously, it's not a bit of an obvious thing to say, but I kind of followed it up because I'm just going to kind of echo, but expand on what I tweeted about. It's, it's, it, this is more than just uh, getting behind the underdogs or jumping on a bandwagon or, or something like that, I think. You know, for my generation... They are one of Europe's great clubs, like historically great clubs. You know, when I grew up, my dad would tell me about Johan Cruyff and tell me about that side of the early 70s that kind of took Europe by storm in a similar way that this Ajax team are now. And then, you know, we had that great generation in the mid 90s, which meant that as a young kid, you kind of saw them as this really exciting talismanic almost yeah they they, they, they epitomized what football was meant to be yeah and each of these cycles has had a really core identity running through them and it's like i said in the tweet i was like you know it's it's one of europe's great clubs returning to the highest stage operating on a fraction of the budget that the rest of the clubs are in competition like i think ajax's entire operating budget from two seasons ago i think give credit to swiss ramble here because he posted a really good thread about it I think, if I remember rightly, the figures, it was something like €4 million Euros more than just Ronaldo's transfer fee. And that's including the whole operating budget. Unbelievable. You know, their wages, I think their wage bill from last season was €53 million, Euros, when in comparison, I think Arsenal's is over €200 million. They're operating on the budget of a kind of championship club. And it's like I said, I think it's just, it's beautiful. And it, it, I don't want to sound too kind of over the top, but emotional, but it really is. It's not the way they're, because, well, the, the way they're playing. There's a, there's a gif that someone's posted. Um, I think the Twitter handle is Amadit, posted a, um, a clip of Fiax playing out from the back in the second half. And they go back to front. And the synchronised nature of the play, the first thing I'll just say is there's no more, you can correct me if I'm wrong and the audience can correct me as well. There is currently no more thankless task in world football than trying to press Frankie de Jong when he's playing out from the back. I mean, it's a horrifying prospect. In the game in Turin, the first 20 minutes, Juve actually did that really well. They really pressed Ajax really well. And that, for me, again, was something really impressive was that Ajax dealt with it and came through that and they lost their two first choice fullbacks. They kept playing their football, right? I think that's the reward. Yeah, I mean, I think Ronaldo had a header in the second half, but that's literally the only time I can remember him touching the ball, really, which shows you how dominant Ajax were. And actually... One criticism I would say about them, and this is something that Delic said after the game as well. Bear in mind, this is a 19-year-old mm. captain. You know, they've beaten Real Madrid in Madrid. They've beaten Juventus in Turin. And he says, we need to score more goals. Yeah, their finishing is really a problem. When I was watching it, the thing that I thought, and I actually said when we were watching it, was I think they think this is so in the bag that they're kind of messing around a little bit. 
I don't know, actually. I think it's the opposite. I think they're rushing it because Neres is culpable. I've seen him in a couple of those games uh, against Real and against Juve. And at crucial points, he's done it. And we're like, oh my goodness, they're going to regret that. I don't think it's because he's in the bag. I think it's because Neres in particular understands the gravity of the moment and snatches at chances that he should bury. He did it against Real. He did it against Juve. And I love Ajax. And I'm just worried that is going to cost them. Yeah, maybe. I think that's that definitely... That but that's, that, that, that's the real only key thing they need to seriously work on for, sure, for the yeah. semi-finals yeah. but I get what you're saying but they just seem to be so confident that we know we're going to get other chances they had an assassin up front you look at Red Star Belgrade in 91 they had like Darko Panchev right? yeah. they just had someone who was a killer and they had all those incredible playmakers behind them and Panchev got it I mean if they had like a Roy Mackay type player or someone said actually very good point if they had Justin Kluivert somebody said mm. actually does he regret all these kinds of finishes? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe he re- he might regret moving, but I don't think Ajax really miss him. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you've got you've got Klasen, Jan Huntelaar on the bench. You know, he's a pretty good finisher. Like- Isn't it funny, though, they haven't used someone like Huntelaar because maybe he doesn't work for the fluidity of the system. Because if you look at what they've done with that team, they have sacrificed the dead-eye Ronaldo-type finisher around whom, around whom the entire attack is built for fluidity. And I think they're right. I think it's the right gamble to well, make. Well, yeah, I mean, we watched the Real Madrid game together and we couldn't, figure out actually who was playing where at some points. I still don't know. Because Van der Beek was starting in midfield, but he would be the furthest player forward. And then the next minute he would be the six and Frankie de Jong would be really high. And that I think is what causes people so many problems because at this stage of the Champions League against smaller clubs, so much of it is system-based that actually when you can't figure out how they're coming at you for clubs like Juventus and Real Madrid. I just don't think they're used to that. I think that's right. There's there's a player, I mean, that that clip that was posted, the one that's going around thousands of times on Twitter, there was a moment where the poor guy on the left flank, the Juventus player, had a triangle played around him. And I remember thinking, I can't remember the last time I saw a proper Ajax triangle played around a player like that, like that speed, you know, like in the way that a triangle, I mean, Cruyff talked about this in, um, when he's explaining in this brilliant video, TV show. the diamond, the chalkboard. And he gets this, yeah. Where he's explaining the diamond and his point was, no, the diamond isn't a formation like a fort. The diamond is all over the field at yeah. once. And, a cons- and I, watching them, I was like, Cruyff would have absolutely loved this. You know, the funny thing about Cruyff is, I can imagine Cruyff sitting back and being like, Actually, the performance against Juve was better than the performance against Real. <laughs> you can imagine having like a different opinion to everyone else. So actually, the best we've played this season was against Bayern Munich and we didn't win. So it's, you know, one of those. No, he'd you be like, no, actually, I think you'll find, Ryan, the first 20 minutes was the best. Because actually, it's when we stuck to our philosophy. A philosophy is never great until it is tested. <laughs> the last 15 minutes against Breda were our best of the season and no one talks about it you know <laughs> yeah, exactly. we lost funny? one nil or something like I that I feel like we should actually have on the podcast like a spare microphone in case Johan ever wants to drop by <laughs> um, shout out shout out to the big man yeah so they're through yeah yeah and it's it's so exciting it's so great to have them in the final stages I don't think anyone would want to play them who wants that problem and Van der Beek had a monster of a game he's like brilliant. he's always very good but he really it was it's so it's funny like you know they talk in um in certain sports about rotating the strike someone steps up to become the primary player and de Jong was brilliant against madrid and very good again but de Litt and van der beek really in this tie in particular stepping up and de Litt was at fault for the for the goal right but because the recovery he, yeah because he shoved who did he shove he shoved his own guy <laughs> as if like get out of my way and he actually got screened and Lost Ronaldo, that was his guy. And next time, I don't know, any pundit starts slagging off zonal marking, just show him that video of that goal. Right. Because that's that, that doesn't happen with zonal marking. Yeah, absolutely. That's what happens with man marking. Well, my favourite system is zonal marking by, by a long way. We've got a couple of questions on Ajax, so we okay. might as well just... We kind of covered one from Anit underscore AB10. How inefficient but wonderful are Ajax? And that's pretty much it. They are wonderful. They could be more ruthless. They could they be real yeah, ruthless. They should, they should be. I mean, really, against Juve, they should have had four, maybe five. They make me feel like Red Star that's Belgrade. A bit, that's a bit. Well, they're like Red Star Belgrade. You know, Red Star in 91, when they destroyed Bayern, I think 5-2 in the semi. And that was a team that really everything was locked in. And that team took its chances. And I just think Ajax need to find the composure. I know they score tremendous goals and they do tend to score big mm. goals at big times. But in both of these ties, you could argue they should have been out of sight. And I'm glad Delit has said that. I'm glad he's come out and challenged himself and his own players. He's so impressive for 19. Amazing, amazing. He started in the Europa League final as well against Manchester United when he was 17. 
I do believe. <laughs> Manchester United, Barcelona. No, we're not going there yet. We've got really? a couple of more questions. Oh no, let's go. Uh, Dan Collins at can underscore Dollins. Is Dusan Tadic proof that while the Premier League improves physical aspects, it does little for most players' technical ability? Many potentially brilliant players have had average careers in defensive mid-table English clubs. I don't think that's fair. I know the point he's making, but I would make a different point. I just think the specific manager Tadic had did not understand his qualities. And there are managers in the Premier League for clubs that have a primary defensive bent who can accommodate such players. Um, I just think that he was unlucky to go to Southampton in the year of Mark Hughes because under Pochettino, in a different system, you know, for a sustained period could have flourished, I think. So I think he was unlucky. It's actually someone who would have done really well at Spurs, I think. Oh, yeah. It's like a perfect Spurs signing. What a player. Uh, I texted my friend Rob to try and... Great question, though, can I say? Great question. To uh, see if I could get a a moany Southampton take on Tadic, but he wasn't biting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We got a question from um, Ryan, not me, Mm. uh, at RAS underscore Dam. What's happened to the tactical genius that was Allegri? Hey, you know what? That's a very good question because Juventus have really very good players and a team with those players shouldn't receive a drubbing like that. Not really. I have a theory on this. You think Serie A has made them go soft? I think it's Ronaldo. I think it was a mistake. Interesting. Basing everything around him. And I think this isn't like a pan Ronaldo. I just think that you've seen it with... Real. Well, you did see it with Real when they started to go the way that Zidane knew they were going to go. Right. The difference between Real Madrid and, and Juventus is just that they are, they are really different clubs in very different situations. Juventus are the top of the league. Real have only won three out of the last 11. No, two out of the last 11 La Ligas. Very, very different. And he just demands so much attention from a sporting aspect and a non-sporting aspect at Juve. I just think that I'm not sure they found that balance yet. Prime example is free kick. You know, Ronaldo is not a good free kick taker. Panic is one of the best in the Europe. best in that side, probably. And yet it's rare that he gets them. I just think it's a little bit too It's predictable. Then actually no, you made a great point there. I think when a, a team goes through one player primarily, and this is not actually look, Ronaldo we've criticized in other respects. Well it happened with Arsenal and Thierry Henry, prime well, example. Ta- but even like, even, even the Ronaldo thing, let's let's get let's get into it tactically. Let's be specific to Ronaldo and what Allegri has to deal with. Ronaldo scored the bulk of Juventus' goals. He scored all the goals from his, in his tie. He scored them against Atleti. The problem there is, as someone said, as Omar Akatugba said on um, Twitter, Omar said it very well. He said, look, headers and penalties, static play, crosses, corners. So subconsciously, if you know that's how Ronaldo likes to score, you subconsciously start making runs, start running decoys that, that, that feed that, right? That system. And it works when it works. Of course it works because if you get him headers, you'll score them. If you get him space in the box from eight yards, he'll score those. The problem is, what do you sacrifice in creating those chances? It's the high volume shooter who James still Harden. scores 40 points, but taking 50 shots to get there. Absolutely. So what happens is, as you find in the NBA, good teams, great teams, they let you get your 30, they let you get yeah. your goals. Let that guy get his one or two shots a game because the sum total is we're going to overcome them. So it's not that Allegri is not a brilliant coach, tactically he is. It's that the fluidity he's working with is severely constrained. I mean... They're a team full great, of extremely what, good players. What great que- Can I just say, yeah. what great questions. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, I mean, they're a team full of extremely good players and I think it's, it's very easy to underestimate the problems that signing someone who is so clearly above the rest of the team, who has already achieved so much in terms of stature yep. and status, how many problems that can throw in to right. a mix for a manager. Didn't you say this actually about uh, a few months ago about the problem of the best player, the problem of the great player, yeah. when the when the great player's out? Yeah. And I think it was in relation to, I don't know if it was in relation to Messi, but... It was Sanchez and Coutinho, I think. Okay, great. No, no, I love, I love that. I think that's actually worth an article, Ryan. So not to put you on the spot on the oh. podcast, but maybe Ryan, if you could write an article for the Rabona website about that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to give you homework. <laughs> All right. You're going on holiday. You're giving me homework. Only because it's your theory, Ryan. It's your theory. Well, it's not exactly, yeah. It is, it it's is. It's not rocket science. Well, only because you're so smart. But anyway, let's uh, continue. <laughs> let's continue. I'm not dressed like a pundit again, am I? Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm wearing an NTS t-shirt. So shout out to how, NTS. I love how you always get defensive and have to mention what you're wearing because you're like, just in case. Well, is this going to be like a new a feature, a new segment? I'm wearing a, an NTS t-shirt. Shout out to NTS. <laughs> Best online radio station in the world. It is. It is absolutely brilliant. Uh, right, let's move on to Barcelona and Manchester United. Let's be brief on this one. Let's, just, let's be as brief as the contest was. Anyone checked on Phil Jones this morning? Oh no. Sawhead. A bear with a sawhead. I had sore a sawhead watching him. It oh. was... 
Oh, I mean, the scary thing was I actually tweeted and I'm not sure I was completely accurate, but I was like, you know, Messi's in second gear and still just going to the bank. And it was funny because as brilliant as Messi was, we've seen Messi like go to the moon. I don't think, and it's not that he wasn't trying, don't get me wrong. I think that Messi was still playing at 40%. Just did enough. Does that make sense? Mm. And I don't mean that disrespect to Messi. It's quite the opposite. It's just that I've seen Messi like, you know, for 90 minutes just going out of his mind. And I think he just was like, John Wick, let's give Messi his credit. Let's give Valverde his credit. I actually thought Valverde was a little bit too conservative with his starting players. I was very surprised to see Semedo on the bench. I was very surprised to see Dembele on the bench. I think that's going to hurt Barcelona. I don't actually think, funny enough, teams watching them will be frightened. I'd yeah, rather get Barcelona than Ajax. There's part of me, though, that thinks Valverde did that just for squad management. Okay, really. interesting. Yeah, good point. We've got some pretty important games coming up. So, I mean, they're going to win the league, but they have had a few fitness issues. Yeah. I mean, he did bring Dembele on, right? He did, know? yeah. So, and Semedo. And Semedo, who and both looked really good when they did come on. Um, Coutinho scored. Yeah. So, maybe that's good for him. So maybe long term, it's kind of worked out all right on both, really. The only reason I thought he was, I was worried about his selection from a Barcelona point of view. United started with so much speed and Barca didn't really have the speed on the break mm. to keep United honest. Mm. That was my only concern at the team sheet. I was thinking, it's just because what they did against Roma, similar problem. They started without pace. And so when they were boxed in, they couldn't spring on Roma because once you occupied Messi... Who's your outlet? Who's your real speedster? Well, I mean, in the, in the game at the New Camp, the first 10 minutes, I thought uh, Man United were the better team. Actually. Oh, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, they, were, they started really impressively. Yeah. Marc-Andre Bar- Stegen is the coolest keeper in the world. 30 seconds in, Rashford's about to hit the bar, just sticks hand up, goes, oh no, it's not going. So chilled. But it did dip though. It, it did. did. And actually, he could have been caught out there. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think this is anything for Manchester United to be too disheartened by I don't really think well people didn't expect them to get this far especially after the first leg against PSG well they, PSG must be furious considering what United did against yeah. Barca they what must a be waste oh my. one thing I was about United is the problems that are there and I don't want to dwell on this but no you have to dwell on this because this is a big segment this is okay. the one time you have to dwell on Manchester okay, well, United okay well, I'll just be very frank then you are okay to dwell on Manchester United oh okay Ashley Young Chris Smalling and Phil Jones should not have played that many games for Manchester United, like over the years. I think these are, these are players who have pushed themselves to the very limits of their potential in the team. I think they've done, given as much as they can. And their presence in the team over so many years reflects a systemic failure of recruiting. So they have won things for United. They've won Europa Leagues. They've, um, well, the Europa League, FA Cup, you know, they've, they've won the league. And, and the Premier League as well. So let's, you know, I give that full credit. But putting them in situations, and specifically um, Ashley Young, for Ashley Young to have been used as a fullback so often in Europe against attacks of that calibre, it speaks to a failure of recruitment. It really does. Yeah, I mean, the thing he's is... he's doing a job. He's doing a job, which he's been called upon to do, but he shouldn't have been put in that position so often. Those three guys started in the game against Basel, where United went out in 2011-12, I think. With David De Gea as well. So I think the fact that it's 2019 and those three are still starting games and a little little bit of that is down to form and fitness, obviously. I mean, United are are struggling a little bit on both counts now. But you're right. It's a real failure of recruitment. And I think if you compare the two, uh, not wanting to loop this back to Ajax, but if you compare the paths of both teams since that Europa League final two seasons ago, that was a United team that had Daily Blint in it. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Think? It's unbelievable. Isn't it funny how no one questions Daily Blint now? It's not even a thing. It's not even like a... No one's asking, can he play centre-back anymore? No, no, no. <laughs> it's, no, it's true. It's hilarious. It's a very clever move from him, I think. It was as clever as his dad's move. Yeah, because his dad went back, didn't he? Isn't I, it? I saw it's, an incredible tweet saying I can't remember who it was. That was, you know, it was like one of those nights when football Twitter was really good. Someone said, uh, "Can't wait to see Ed Woodward bring Daily Blim back to Old Trafford for seventy million pounds," <laughs> 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 which would just totally sum up United's transfer policy. It would, it would. I don't know. I mean, they maybe we should move. Should we move on to a little bit more of a, a Manchester United? Let's zoom out. I mean, if you want to, if we have to. Because we've got a few questions about this. Yeah, sure, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Okay, G Wright, so at GJ Wright, says, it's early for it, but... Was hiring Ole Gunnar Solskjaer full-time a mistake? Or to put it another way, if in December I'd said United will finish fifth or sixth and go out of both cups without much fight, but they'll give Solskjaer a three-year contract anyway, would anyone have believed it? 
that's a good point. It's an excellent question. Like, like I said, I've said in this podcast before, they gave that contract too soon. I said this in the last podcast, and I, a very good friend of mine, uh, we had a chat, and he said, "Oh, the fear, the fear in your voice on the podcast when he got the contract because we recorded it straight after." Mm. And I'm like, "They've given that too soon." Well, I mean, I don't. I, we we I, spoke about this at the time, and I don't understand what waiting until the end of the season would have what harm that would have done social media engagement it wouldn't have got the, they, had, got they, the did, they did watch that new app didn't they it wouldn't have got the numbers they wouldn't have trended on twitter they wouldn't have had the, the hashtag do you think it's that yes really yes i support manchester united i see this i see if i said something like that people would come after me well they should come after me frankly i mean i'm god knows i've you know said enough on this podcast to get me <laughs> barred from 17 states but no um look i think united for too long have been occupied by quick fixes and i'm not saying that this was the wrong appointment i'm just saying it was too soon it was too early and people caught up in a moment and it's basically kind of like eloping to vegas where you know what let's instead of getting married in vegas in the summer let's wait till autumn check our finances. I know it's not exciting, but let's actually plan where we're going to live when we get back from Vegas. You know, he's going to take the bins out. I just think we had to do some housekeeping and we didn't do the housekeeping before we appointed Solskjaer. I think the timing was too soon. We could have really put structures in place. So when things like this happen, we look back and go, you know what, there's going to be a big rebuild, maybe bigger than we anticipated because it's going to be a huge one, frankly. Mm. Do we have everything around Solskjaer to give him the infrastructure he needs? And I just think this defeat has to be a wake-up call in terms of the scale of the job that he has to do. And the rebuild, and here's the thing about the rebuild, he hasn't done one of those at this scale before. No, I mean, it's um, a very, it's not an easy job. No, it's not an easy job. Not for anybody. I think this maybe goes to Manchester United as a wider institution. I think the whole thing needs a rebuild. Yeah. The whole operational kind of structure needs a rebuild. The squad needs a rebuild. Um, the structure. The, the owners. Lit I mean, literally the stadium yeah. needs a huge, huge upgrade. The problem is, though, that the owners, um, the Glazers, are doing really well out of United. And I'm not sure how much money... I mean, to be fair to them, they have given a lot of money to United for transfers. Falcao, I mean, my goodness. Di Maria, how huge sums. How much was that loan? I mean, but 300000 350000 a week, I think. It was a huge amount they paid him a week, 300000 Unbelievable amount. I mean, that broke the wage structure. There'll be a documentary about that one day. There will be. And the wastage is interesting because... Part of me thought to myself, look, if you guys really wanted to make huge money, if you'd invested in the football side, you'd be laughing. I mean, we're lucky we went to Carrington. I mean, it's yeah. a beautiful training ground. Yeah. Very kind of state of the art. That side of it's fine. Compare that with like the stadium and there is genuine like concern about the stadium from, from Manchester United fans. Look, the weird thing about the Glazers is I cannot believe that nobody said to them at any point in the last few years, what is so difficult about putting Ed Woodward in charge of commercial operations and getting someone else to do the transfers? What is so hard about it? What you'll actually make more money with a team that's brilliant on the field. Look at you know, look at other clubs. I was going to name other clubs who are doing very well on the field, but I won't because people come after me for stating the obvious. But screw it, Liverpool and Man oh. no, Liverpool and Manchester City. Look, these clubs are playing well on the field, and what's happening? It's good for the club commercially. If you align the commercial goals with the footballing goals, shock horror. Actually everyone's a winner. Part of my thinking is what is so hard about aligning, what is so frightening about aligning the business goals with the, the footballing ones? Well, we've said this numerous times on this podcast, the two can be symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Look at Apple. Apple have a really nice product with a smartphone. It looks great. It's functional. It works. Okay. The batteries do whatever they do, but look. It's listening to you. Oh, yeah, it's true actually. Yeah. I've never activated Siri for that reason. I'm scared it's going to start like suggesting. No, I, don't, I don't mess with Siri. Yeah, I don't trust it. I don't, I don't trust. I don't trust anything to start talking back to me. Frankly, whoa! Well, there's electronic things talking <laughs> back to you. Oh, dude, I've got a friend. He talks to his Alexa. Alexa, do this. Alexa, do that. He come back. Alexa's locked you out. I'm run off with your family. Listen, <laughs> sorry to get sorry to get Luddite on this podcast. Wow, uh, we've got another question. Spicy. Kind of on uh, the Man United thing. So I'm going <laughs> to say this before Musa gets his Tim Fall hat on. <laughs> um, <laughs> at Mash Saint Paddy. The great human, the great human. In this climate of football short-termism, will United head honchos now accept that they actually need to restart the club with a clear philosophy? From Moyes to Van Gaal to Mourinho, they have allowed so many players to go unscathed for so long. Does the club have an identity? And maybe this brings it nice and full circle before we wrap this. It's a great question. They need, the club has an identity, but here's the thing. What is it though? I'm going to push you on this. What is it? What's Manchester United's identity? 
And this isn't me being at best clever. At, no, no, this is just me. Question. At best, attacking football based upon youth. It's at, at its core, it's meant to be Ajax at its core. But along the way, United lost their way, which is why now, unfortunately, you are seeing them leaning a little bit too heavily on the past. And Miguel Delaney sent a brilliant tweet about this. He said, look, like the kind of nostalgia thing that Solskjaer did when he came in, which was great and it's a surge of optimism, he has dialed it back a little bit because the danger of relying or leaning too heavily on your past is that people start seeing other analogies with the past and they start to become shackles. Brexit. Well, exactly. And you need to, United with appointing Solskjaer, their aim is to go back to the future. We go back in time, we bring someone who's a legend and then like restores the club. That is still a possibility for Solskjaer. He can still do that, but he needs a very modern structure around him. I don't think Solskjaer actually has old-fashioned or antiquated football ideas. I don't think he does. I think actually having Lingard as a false nine was incredibly progressive. If you look at the tactics United were using, to use Lingard as a false nine straight out the bat was, was extremely smart, extremely shrewd. No one else had really suggested it. But in response to Mashed um, Paddy's question, United don't need to restore, they don't need to like rethink the identity. They need to actually fund it. It's like when David Cameron said, we've got the big society for the British society, but never actually spent any money on it. So like, if, well. if you want an army of volunteers, you have to pay people, you know, an army of like workers, you've got to pay people. You can't just use rhetoric. You can't just say United are X and then not fund it. You can't just say United are this thrilling attacking side and then not actually provide a, a basis, an infrastructure, a, a balanced squad to that effect. I'm going to put my uh, Captain Hindsight hat on. Yeah. So when Alex Ferguson retires, yeah, and poor Van Persie left in the lurch because he thought he'd have like a few more years of him. <laughs> um, no sympathy from Ryan. I mean, so that's what seven seasons ago now. Mm. So United are in are coming to the end of the seventh season without Alex Ferguson. Is that right? Have I done my maths right? About that, about that six, six or seven. Can you realistically see them winning the league in the next two or three years? Not in the next five. So that would be over a decade that they haven't really gone close. Maybe to, well, they weren't close that one. I oh, know Ferguson was still there. So, but let's say over a decade of not going, in theory, not going close to winning the league right. after Alex Ferguson. So, what have you really achieved in that time? Really, I mean, I know you've, I know Manchester United have won a European trophy, and that's not to be sniffed at. I'm not kind of, I'm but not for what like, United are. I'm not bashing United here. I'm saying that I think it's a bit alarming that, right? Put it this way: when Arsenal start showing more nous in terms of restructuring when a legacy manager leaves than your club. Agreed. Shit has got very real. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> listen. Do you know this what is, I mean? Listen, this is real talk. This is real talk. And I'm just glad that I am a bit older and not like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old growing up on United. I'm glad that I'm not because the anxiety I'd have growing up watching United now and just sort of thinking, they might not win till I get to uni. They might not. United, plausibly. Well, this is actually a really good thing, yeah. actually, with what Mash St. Paddy's saying here. And that is that I think the problem with United over the, since Ferguson is that there hasn't been any real tangible identity. or yeah. identity there. There's, there's been nothing there. It has been kind of like whack-a-mole. The appointment of Jose Mourinho, in a strange sense, was, was a low point. Not because he became second in the league, because he did, he did really well on paper, in a sense. Second in the league, Europa League. The problem is that it was an abandonment of what United stood for. It was basically, we're going to appoint you to stop someone else. Mourinho was appointed to stop Guardiola. That was it. It didn't work out well for Real Madrid. That was only the thinking. And it's, yeah, it hasn't really worked out for anyone, has it? That's tried to... Where are they going to face off next? Whenever Mourinho has been brought in, brought in to stop a specific manager, it hasn't worked. Well, it's been Guardiola both times. I mean, Guardiola barely even noticed him this time around. And in the process, what United did was they said, look, it is not about anything other than trophies. It's not about how we play. We're basically like gambling the entire house on this guy bringing us on-field glory. And here's the thing about Van Hal. Van Hal played football in his final season, coach that was absolutely stultifying. But you know what? Here's the thing. Van Hal, at his best, and it was only a few games where it really worked. And actually, to be honest, he could have won a league one year. He was actually yeah. ahead. And then like we stumbled and we shouldn't have. Van Gaal at one point when we beat Spurs that year and we beat City 4-2 at Old Trafford played football or at, again away at Anfield as good as I've seen by United side in the last 15 years. Interesting. So I, in a weird kind of way Captain Hindsight I would say that period where Van Gaal had us leading the league um, just after Christmas 
was the best football I think we played because it looked like we were on the path somewhere. Mm. The challenge, of course, for unfortunately for United is playing as a Van Hal player, it's exa- it's mentally exhausting. Yeah. And I think that's what killed us because when you're playing Van Hal style, if the gaps don't open, if you're not quick enough, then you have to revert to playing around. Uh, my point that I was kind of going, trying to get at before was that if United had kind of used that period as soon as, well, as soon as Ferguson announced that he was leaving mm. and been like, right, this is a new era now. We're going to reset because we have to. Yes. And we are going to change the structure. We're not going to win the league for five years. We know that right now, basically. Do you know what I mean? I know you wouldn't, Manchester United wouldn't You've come out and say point. that, but I'm just saying, yeah. if, for example, you get a load of the aging squad off the books, because that was an aging squad, it was an expensive aging squad, you then really get that identity back because United had started to lose that quite a lot, right? And the difference between this and a smaller club doing this philosophy is that it's Manchester United. It's one of the biggest clubs in the world. So if you get a squad growing together in their early 20s that are rated as like 100 million euro players, they're going to stay at Manchester United. Yeah. So I think that the problem that Manchester United have had in the last since Ferguson has left is that their fans have just struggled to connect with the club and the, and a lot of the teams that have been that come through. Whereas if they yeah. one of the things they love is like feeling that it's just it could be anyone they know playing for Man United, right? Exactly. And I know that is a but a massively romantic kind of nostalgic thing to say, but that would have bought them the time. Yeah, you know, it's like another NBA reference: you blow it up, you reset you start and you build a team again and if and i honestly think and i this is so easy to say this now because man united have essentially just lost to barcelona in the champions league which is no that's not shabby at all but i think that it would have at least there would have been a clear direction but now we're seven years further down the line and they're in no clearer direction than they were when ferguson left and just to throw this in there as well sorry i was gonna sorry to jump in but i was thinking of the point as you were talking the irony is that's exactly what Ferguson did uh, with his greatest teams when he sold Keane and he brought in Michael Carrick. He was capable throughout his career. What defined his career was the ability to restructure, mm. to take things that looked absolutely fine and blow them up, to take the 94 side and sell Robson, Kanchelskis and Ince and bring in the youngsters. So it's just interesting and ironic that at the end of his tenure, he didn't say, do you know what? Let me bring in a director of football before I leave. Let me bring all this stuff in before I leave. It's yeah. fascinating that actually, ultimately, think, he failed himself. I think we'll do a deep dive on that one day because we've had that conversation. Maybe yeah. we should put it to tape. Maybe we should. Okay. Oh, well. right. Let's let's you right. Let's let you actually go on holiday. Now. I'm off overseas. Right, so uh, goodbye. Be, bye. <laughs> I will be back on Monday. Another reminder: please give us a rating and review on iTunes if you do. Subscribe to the podcast on there, and you can find us on all social media channels. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Rabonamag. Thanks very much for listening and we will chat to you again on Monday. Music